0: Triff, you and I love talking about baseball, but as much as we love talking about baseball, we love watching it in person even more. And I have good news. We're now partnering with our friends over at SeatGeek to bring listeners $20 off tickets for whatever game they want to see. Yes, $20 off. And All you need to do is head over to SeatGeek, find the game you want to see. Maybe you want to go to the home opener for the National League champion Phillies. I don't blame you. I wish I could be there. And you're going to enter the promo code Ball and get 20 bucks off. Maybe you're just looking to travel to a stadium you haven't ever been to this summer. See some big league action. Last summer, I got to see Sandy Alcantara. It was very exciting. I've been a big fan. I had never seen him throw. And this summer, I can go see him again. You could go see him. All you have to do is go to SeatGeek, enter the promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL, and you'll get $20 off your first ticket buy. SeatGeek, promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL. Do it this summer. Go check some games out. Powered by Riverside.
1: Welcome back to the Backside Ground Balls podcast. We've got a really special episode here today. We're coming to you on a Wednesday evening late here, um, but super excited about this episode we have today. We have Carlos Collazo with Baseball America. Carlos, thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. appreciate it.
1: So the, the first question I got for you, and this was a question that was brought to me by Dan, so I'm, I'm not going to take credit for this one. What's the experience of being courtside for the end of that Villanova-UNC game? Obviously, it probably hurt, but that's literally a legendary finish.
2: Man, what a tough one. What a tough <laughs> one to open up with. I think um, I think that still might be the best live sporting event that I've ever watched, first of all. Um, second of all, I feel like my UNC fandom was a bit muted at that game because I was there covering it. Uh, for the student newspaper at UNC at the Daily Tar Heel. If you guys are listening don't know, that's where I went to school. Um, So I I got the chance to cover that 2016 team Um, my senior year of college. Got a chance to go to that game live. As soon as Marcus Page hit that double clutch shot, I just knew it was going to overtime. I knew they were winning. I was like, there's no way you make that shot. Uh, The momentum was in their way. I thought they were a really talented team, well-rounded and I was like, okay, this this is crazy. I'm not only at a national championship game, I'm about to see a game that's going to overtime. This has got to be one of the greatest. And then the shot, the, the returning salvo, uh, just a few seconds later was was stunning. And my first thought afterwards was like, man, I really don't want to have to go talk to these players in the locker room right now. Yeah. They're The last thing they're going to want to do is talk to me. Uh, but I had to do it. And it was definitely a... a a memory that I will not forget uh, at any point. It was it was awesome, even though it was not the result that the Tar Heel fans would have, would have wanted.
0: Yeah, so I learned that the other day. And then I was just like, I'm as casual of a college basketball fan as you can possibly be. Like I watched March Madness. Like that's it. That's where my fandom starts and ends, like when the tournament starts. And like I re- like that is so seared into my brain. It's just like including the Marcus Page double clutch three. Like that was insane. And like you said, like I'm like, okay, OT... Like, this is uh, what an unbelievable shot. That's a memory that you're never going to forget. And uh, it's like one of those things, like the Rajay Davis swing off of oldest Chapman. Like years later, no one really remembers that. But what an unbelievable swing that was because the response and the thing that sticks with me is like Jay Wright's reaction, how like it was almost like he knew it was going to happen that way was just like, so I can't imagine being and feeling because you were probably pretty sitting pretty low, I would imagine, as a reporter.
2: Yeah, I had unbelievable seats. It was like directly court level so the the court is raised up a little bit right honestly the first row you're almost a little bit too low and i was the second row so i was like perfect level right at the corner and it was i was on the side uh that villanova hit the shot so you could just see like coach walking down the sideline ready to shake the hand as like the ball's in midair it was a cold it was a pretty cold moment um, yeah that's but that's very cool to
0: see and to feel the energy because you have those seats like to feel the energy of that building like directed at you like that I mean again that's like a top five sports moment that's happened I feel like in my lifetime that had to be yeah. you know, crazy and unfortunately like you said you were uh, you were rooting for the wrong side <laughs> but still just to like say <laughs> they they, that won a, to- uh,
2: they won a much uglier game the next year it was it was not fun to watch but the result was what they wanted
0: a couple years with Drake May's brother right? Was uh, he on that team? I don't remember. The I back
2: the very next year, I don't remember if Luke May I think it I think it would have been Luke, Luke, Luke may, may hit you. the shot against Kentucky, I think to, right. to get them uh it would have been the Cameron Johnson, Justin Jackson, uh Joel Berry, Kenny Meeks. Yeah, that that crew I think
0: is what the team was. That's a good yeah. Sorry, I just felt like we had to ask you that, and we can we can talk about baseball, and we will. But I just like that's just such a cool like that has to be a cool like you know you're at a party and you need a mm-hmm. like an icebreaker like. I was, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> watch, I was Funnily there. enough, I
2: don't think of that one as the icebreaker, <laughs> but it also is funny too because I feel like UNC sports is really my last, not UNC sports, UNC basketball specifically right. is like the last team that I pull for because obviously I'm a baseball fan first and foremost, but it feels odd rooting for a team when you're in the industry covering some of these teams uh and so that kind of fades away um and unfortunately this year we haven't had a whole lot to root for with the with the unc hoops team. yeah maybe next year will
0: be better yeah it just that is a a a promise we'll stop but that goes to me that goes to show you that like especially in college basketball coaching is so important because like as soon as roy williams leaves like there's obviously and i think Hubert Davis will do a good job, obviously, but like even even Duke, right? Like you see, without Coach K, like they're they took a step back. Like how important yeah. coaching is at that level. It's- yeah,
2: my my last comment on on college basketball would be. Uh, hubert davis will be a legend forever for ending coach k's career the way he did that's so, true that's true and that, that. team
0: what yeah that run last year was awesome that's a good point valid was- <laughs> there's
1: a there's a college football podcast that i listen to that believes that that's like cursed unc sports for like multiple years <laughs> don't <because> care <laughs>
2: they, <fine>. that's <laughs> what they all say. for my entire life that's,
0: that's amazing <laughs>
2: Yeah, so that
1: that's what they always say is nobody cares, but like that is the curse you have to take to end Coach K's career that way. <laughs> yep, <Yeah>, worth it. <laughs> oh well, that's awesome. Well, well, you mentioned obviously covering baseball and and what an what an occupation that is as as somebody who I mean we both coached in baseball and and that's you know a lot of fun and a lot of great memories, but you know I kind of want to know what, what's it like to work at. Baseball America and have the experience, and also dive into a little bit, plug the podcast. I've mentioned the podcast on here multiple times, talking about some things that you guys have talked about, but kind of go through for our listeners that might not know exactly what you guys try to do and what you guys offer, and and kind of give them their perspective.
2: Yeah, so what I do for Baseball America is is cover the MLB draft. So most of my focus is on the top high school players in the country for any given draft class, and than the top college players. So basically anyone who MLB scouts are going to be watching uh, and selecting in the draft, I am basically spending the entire year getting to know those players, talking to scouts, writing reports, uh, and covering the draft full time. It's it's very much a blessing to be able to do that. Uh, there are a lot of people who cover the draft. I know there are a lot of people who have to balance that draft coverage with prospect coverage uh, of the minor leagues uh, which we do at Baseball America as well. We just have a separate team that's kind of mostly focused on that. Um, have to cover other parts of the game in addition to the draft, which is very challenging considering how how big the draft is, uh, even though it's 20 rounds still. Um, so I'm very lucky to be able to kind of just have that as my focus year-round. Uh, but but anyone not familiar with Baseball America, I'll just say that in general, um, we have an approach of covering the game from player development um, covering prospects from high school, college. We cover the college game from a competitive standpoint, um, minor league prospects. And then we have major league coverage. We're expanding our fantasy coverage this year, which we've done in the past. But BA really started as a magazine. It's funny, it's Baseball America, but it was started in Canada um, as a magazine that covered the minor leagues. Uh, Alan Simpson, the founder of Baseball America, is, is largely credited with, with starting prospect coverage. Um, and so kind of being able to follow in that legacy has been a lot of fun for me and really baseball America has been my only full-time job. I was lucky enough to kind of stumble into this right after college. Um, but it is, it is nice to be able to watch baseball and write about baseball and talk to baseball people for a living. Uh, it's a lot of work, but I can't lie and say that it doesn't often feel like work, even on the days where you're kind of logging a bunch of hours, you've been at the park for a while, uh, you have a lot to write about. It, it always is very rewarding and very satisfying to just be able to stick around the game uh, in a professional capacity. It's, it's a blast. Yeah, and...
1: So the one part that uh, intrigued me as you were talking is you mentioned the fantasy baseball coverage and both of us, Dan and I are dynasty uh, fantasy baseball players. What's the bait? I know you've mentioned this on your podcast. What's the Baseball America Dynasty uh, League look like? Like how do what are the prospects <laughs> that are available right now? Because I feel like everybody can actually be pull on top up our of
0: league. <laughs> <laughs> Because I I
1: feel like there's always owners in every league that you take advantage of. But when it's literally Baseball America's (laughs) Dynasty Baseball League, how do you get good deals? Like, I feel like everybody's probably the stingiest owners and is always first on every (laughs) prospect.
2: It's actually, it's it's felt fairly balanced. And I will say I am not a good fantasy baseball manager at all. I think I know the prospects well, but I do think so much of being a good manager is just being very active on the waivers. And I would say when the season heats up is also when the draft coverage heats mm-hmm. up for me. And I I definitely put it on the back burner. I'm trying to be better at it this year. Um, but there are people like Matt Eddy and Jeff Ponce who are in the, in the league who are absolute just ringers. And, and so I'll often <laughs> even go to, to Matt and Jeff uh, just because I've only really seriously been playing fantasy baseball for a couple of years. I really ignored the space for a long time, uh, which is much more interested in the, on the field, real life mm-hmm. aspects of the game. So there are some, some things I'm even still learning. I, I don't think just because I'm at baseball America, I'm some fantasy guru. We certainly have those in our league. And, and the be, the best parts about this league from my perspective is we tried to make it like a BA uh, community league. So it's not just a bunch of fantasy okay. experts. It's people who, who read baseball America. Uh, and, and I think in general, people who read baseball America are pretty tapped in to baseball. Um but it's, it's much more of a community league. Uh, and there are some people who have massively different philosophies. Like even with just BA people, Matt Eddy is very much win now. He doesn't want to mess with the prospects. He doesn't want to take four years for a prospect to develop and feel good about kind of getting a homegrown ace. He basically just wants to trade those guys, try and win right away. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, we have Josh Norris, who took Ethan Salas in the second round in our first year player draft startup this past year. And it seems like he's just trading all of his established stars to get as much of the top 100 list as he possibly can. And he just loves like, in general, even outside of fantasy, he, he just loves discovering these low level minor league guys before they pop. He was one of the first guys who was really raving about Jackson Churio last year. So you get a lot of different styles of ownership. Um, but I'll also return to the fact that I don't think I'm particularly good. I was I was very much middle of the pack this past year. My, my best move was probably taking Julio in the second round of our startup. And now it looks like he's like a top five-ish player for startups in Dynasty. So I feel good about that one. But uh, I guess I'll let you guys know if I eventually win the thing.
0: <laughs> well, first off, that makes me feel good because I think uh, I took Ethan Salas in the second round of our first year player draft this year as well. So I'm happy that uh, I wasn't alone in doing that. <laughs> um <laughs> But then I gotta kind of bring you back for a second when you were going to school and like did you ever imagine this is where you were gonna end up I know you said you lucked into it but like how did you what were the steps that it took to get you to baseball America and then two mm-hmm. did you ever imagine that like being at baseball America and, and the information that you guys deliver to baseball fans like Trevor and myself where you arm us with knowledge like you are a knowledge base on a lot of things especially when it comes to prospects and things that mm-hmm. did you ever then, when you got into it, realized you were going to wield so much power when it comes to the knowledge of the sport, like that's that's insane, right? Well, hopefully, we're not wielding
2: that much power. But <laughs> I, I would say, in terms of Baseball America and prospects, no. Um, in terms of baseball, yes, I knew. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. I, I played my whole life. I was four years old playing T-ball. I didn't play any other sports until like senior year of high school when my baseball coach basically forced me to try out for football. Uh, so it was really baseball year round for me in high school. I had like one D3 offer, but I knew the playing career was going to come to an end. And at that point, I was kind of weighing like, do I try and just uh, get the last few years of, of playing baseball? What am I going to do after that? I really would like to find some way to stick around the game um i i found out i think in, in high school that i enjoyed writing probably more than most of my other classes so my mom encouraged me uh to do some blogging on the side she'd done a lot of stuff with her students um she's a teacher so she'd done a lot of just random stuff like that with her students so i started kind of blogging about the Braves cuz that's a team that i pulled for growing up being from the south obviously that TBS umbrella uh, has co- converted a lot of Braves fans so i started doing that i would come home after baseball practice and just write random stuff about the Braves, keep up with, with the team that way. Um, And, and found that I really liked it. I liked writing. I liked writing about baseball. So I was like, Hey, maybe I can, maybe I can do that in some capacity. And I think in high school, the dream was probably to be a beat writer for a big league team. It's like, Oh, that'd be really cool. If you could just kind of follow a team around, watch games. Um, So I went to UNC for journalism. That was kind of the goal, get into sports writing, started working at the DTH uh, which is the Daily Tar Heel Student Newspaper there. Uh, took journalism classes, probably focused a bit more on the DTH side of things than my classes. The grades probably weren't the most uh, sterling uh, throughout my four years, but I, I got the degree. A um, few years in, I, we, there was a, an MLB.com internship. I don't think they have this anymore, but previously you could intern with MLB.com and you basically would follow around a beat writer for a big league team. You'd go to a city, And you would basically become their like secondary beat writer. And it was not an internship where you're getting someone coffee or running errands. No, you're like from day one, I was sitting in the press box, watching the game in the locker room, talking to players uh, and trying to find something to write about. So I did that in Atlanta in 2015. And then in 2016, the summer after I graduated, I did that um, in San Diego with the Padres. Uh, And then actually, I think prior to those two years, I had found out that Baseball America was headquartered in Durham, North Carolina, which is like 15 minutes away from Chapel Hill. I didn't know much about Baseball America at the time, but I very quickly found out what they were about. There was a a bit of a pipeline um, with Baseball America writers coming from UNC who had written at the Daily Tar Heel, John Manuel, um, who was editor-in-chief for a long time was a UNC guy uh, and a DTHer, Will Lingo, who's uh, editor and publisher for a long time, same deal. Aaron Fitt, who's now with D1 UN baseball, UNC guy, DTHer. Uh, so there was a bit of a pipeline that was established, and they like to get interns from the DTH um, just because they're familiar with, with that sort of pipeline of writers. A lot of them have come from it. So I, I interned with Baseball America in 2014. And I would say that's when I was first exposed to sort of the scouting aspect of everything, the draft side of things. And that was, at the time, that was an entirely new world to me. I didn't know much of anything outside of just having played at a very mediocre high school level in North Carolina. Um, and I was like, oh, I, I know next to nothing about this. This is really cool. It's cool to go to these games. It's cool to talk to these scouts. Like, you talk to them, and the way they break down the game is just so different than than I've thought about it. And I'm, I'm coming into this thinking I'm some expert on baseball, but really when I interned, with baseball America. Cause and, like most people, most of my friends, I would say were not huge baseball fans. I was like the, the baseball fan of the group. And when you're around people who are sports fans, but not necessarily baseball fans, it can be very easy to think, Oh, you're like a real yep. expert on baseball. But when I walked into the baseball America office, the way these guys were talking about baseball, I was like, wait, this is <laughs> like a whole new level that I didn't even know existed. And that was like, Another level when you're talking to the scouts, I'm like, did I play the same sport as you guys are talking about right now, uh, my whole life? So that, that really kind of opened up my curiosity and learning more about the game and just being in the office with people who would literally just stop working and start talking about what happened last week or this prospect or some, some random player that I'd never heard of. And we're just breaking them down. I was like, this is really cool. Um, and ever since then, I was hooked, and I wanted to do more of that. So that's kind of a very long-winded way of telling you how I got involved with BA. So hopefully it wasn't wasn't too drawn out.
0: No, it's perfect. That's that's amazing. And just my mind went to real quick is not many people get to live out what a dream was in high school, right? Like, and even if it, it no longer is your dream, what was it like those first couple days on the beat with the Braves? Like, that has to be, like, I'm just putting myself in your position there. Like, I would have, at first, okay. I probably would have been pretty intimidated, but they're I'm guessing there was probably a couple, of like, wow, I'm actually doing this moments.
2: Oh, 1000%. I remember there are quite a few Snapchats that I was sending around to my friends. Like, oh, this is my office. And it's just a picture of like Turner Field. That's, you just, your, your job is to show up at like 1 p.m. to a baseball field. You're sitting in the press box, you're getting free food every night. And hopefully you don't eat it every single day because you'll balloon up really quick. Yeah. But- <laughs> Yeah, the fact that it was my job to watch a baseball game and then talk to people afterwards and write something about it it was super cool. And then being able to work with someone like Mark Bowman, who I think is just one of the best in the industry. I mean, he was one of the first people who even worked uh, for MLB.com. The fact that he's still doing it and just being able to learn from a guy like him. Um, But yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those things where people find out what I do for a living and they're always like, wait that's a job they're always a little taken aback um they're like oh that's really cool and i think it hasn't worn off so far um it still is very cool but i I think there was definitely some some nerves at first like oh i'm i don't know how old i was at the time like 21 2021 like i shouldn't be here in this position right now covering this team but i am so don't don't screw it up right uh there's definitely some of that but um Fortunately, I had a lot, of, a lot of good people along the way that have helped me kind of figure it all out, um, but it's it's been a ton of fun.
0: Are there any tidbits you can share? You don't have to drop any names if you don't want to from those two years that like uh, are pretty cool stories. <clears throat> Let me see. You know, the funny thing is I covered some really bad teams those two
2: years. This was 2015 Braves. Right. So at the like peak of the rebuild, they had just traded all the good players on the team. The prospects hadn't come through. I'm going to pull up their team right now on baseball reference so I can just tell you how <laughs> bad the team was. Um, I remember the, the two players who stood out to me as being like just super nice to talk to were Angleton Simmons at the time and then Cameron Maben. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two guys were just always super um, patient. And I remember there was one time I had to go do they – they were pushing these – just like cell phone videos of player interviews after the games. They wanted uh, the reporters from B.com to do a lot more of those uh, for social media and all this stuff. And I remember for some, I don't even remember what the story was. Some, they wanted something on Cameron Mabin um, and I'm this nobody intern who goes over to Cameron Mabin and he's clearly trying to get out of the locker room. None of the, typically the press goes around in groups. There are a couple people they want to talk to for the game story. I was doing something completely random uh, on the side and I was like, Hey Cameron, uh, can I, can I interview you? He was like, yeah. I was like, <laughs> they want me to take a video too. And I remember just like being super awkward, pulling up the phone and just like staring at him with this phone. And he was the nicest guy about it. Like had, had very good answers. Like took his time to actually give me something. Uh, so I remember being very appreciative of that at the time. Cause I probably had no clue what I was doing. All right. Here we go. 2016. Yeah. Let's get
0: into this.
2: <laughs> 2015 Atlanta Braves. Does anyone want to guess just the the position group for this team? Oh, I don't know man. who, who, who you t- guys pull. You're for. gonna
0: test my in- a memory. Is Omar Infante still on that team? Um, Infante was not on the team. Okay. Wow, you're gonna get me here. I'm trying. To, oh, come on, Chris Johnson definitely had to be playing third. No,
2: Chris. Chris Johnson. <laughs> he was playing. He played 56 games. Uh, there okay. was another third baseman who who edged him out by a couple more.
0: Oh, man. All right. And then, obviously, Simmons is at short. I'll try and come back to third there. Simmons Simmons is at short. Man, this is tough. Um, I'd be
2: surprised if you guys got half the team, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) You got two. You got two. And a third
0: one should be pretty easy. Um, Oh, Freeman's on that team. Yeah, Freeman's on that team team team. first. Sure. Yeah. See, my brain for some reason always wants to go to like mid two thousands to early twenty ten. So I I like him getting ready to say Casey Kochman, and that's like wow, that's way too <laughs> See, <laughs> that's a little it's bit not old. Even yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Gosh darn, I'm trying to I can't even because those teams were just bad. I'm trying to even think of who was catching for them at that point.
2: You can get some pitchers too.
0: Was Tyler Flowers? Is this before Tyler Flowers?
2: Oh yeah. Wow. So, A.J. Pierzynski was the primary catcher. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Oh, man. Freddie Freeman at first. you want to guess anymore or do you want me to give you the team? Go ahead and give it to me. I don't want to bad (laughs) podcast this too much here and try. Freddie Freeman at first. Jace Peterson at second base. Oh, stop. (laughs) Andrelton Simmons at shortstop. Adonis Garcia and Chris Johnson both played third. Johnny Gomes in left field. (sighs) Cameron Mabin in center, and then Nick Marcakis in right.
0: That was one of the K-K. first years of Marcakis, right? That was like yes. that was their like lone free agent signing probably around that time was to bring him home to finish out his career. My yes. gosh. All right. How that about some arms? Was, was Jair Jurgens is on that staff. Had to be.
2: Uh, no. I don't even oh. think Jurgens is on the staff that, that year. I don't know if he was hurt or if he had already left. Julio
0: Tehran then. Julio yeah. Tehran was... <laughs> He
2: was the Probably one. the most talented pitcher, but there was this was a different number one actually. Oh, Completely wow. fell off a cliff when he left Atlanta. <sighs> lefty or righty? One lefty will count, but he's not the player I'm thinking of. There's a okay, lefty and it's then it's the a righty way. who got traded for a pretty good prospect hall. Couldn't be and Chris the, Medlin, the best, could it? The best player of this prospect hall just left the Braves this offseason. Contreras. No, Shelby Miller. Shelby, oh, yeah. Shelby,
0: Shelby Miller. Shelby oh Miller. Shelby
2: Miller. Alex Wood. Williams Perez. Matt Whistler and Mike Fultonevich were the Whistler, main starters. Wow. Yeah. That is- so pretty bad team. <laughs> <laughs> Sixty-seven and ninety-five, fourth in National League East. Oh, and I think Freddie Gonzalez got fired the year I was there too. So that was that was
0: fun. That is fun. And he was also very good to deal with. By the way, I really like Freddie. Gonzalez, The job they've done to uh, turn that, that ship around, where now it's like you can never imagine the Braves only winning 67 games.
2: Yeah, the team I so, went to the next year was the Padres when they were terrible, which, and now they're a juggernaut. So I really chose the wrong time. <laughs> Maybe you, you have the magic your team touch, to, turn around. I, need to yeah. cover, I need to go cover you for a summer. <laughs> Head out that's to that's, Pittsburgh, uh, will you? I got yeah, some friends right. who are Pirates fans. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure if it goes that far now.
0: They could use or maybe Oakland. Work. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs>
2: man, I don't know if the Oakland's trying to be good. They seem to be doing the exact opposite. Hey,
1: I'll, I'll tell you this, Carlos. We we obviously have Colin on this podcast, so we we avoid the Oakland slander as much as po- possible because we don't want to put his name on something on a recorded platform in his own organization. But you, trust me, <laughs> I know
0: you know,
2: but like <laughs> from, we don't think probably. highly. Yeah, from a, from here, a player's perspective, it's not much
0: better. Yeah,
2: well, maybe they can turn it around. <laughs>
1: I, they need to stop trading for depth pieces and finally get a decent talent.
0: I would agree with that one. <laughs> I mean, it's it's bizarre what they do. I mean, it is bizarre. And then to hear Matt Olson talk about like just the experience of playing at, at the Coliseum too, of like how he was like in amazement when he got to Atlanta. Like this is your home clubhouse. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what it looks like. Like I have to walk yeah. through standing water to get to the dugout at, at Oco. It's uh, crazy how that's still a, a thing that happens. But it's bizarre, and they draw 7,000. Like you would think MLB would would step in at some point and be like, "Like you guys, you draw seven thousand fans. You're not actively trying, and you play in a place that might fall down on all of our, our talent here at some mm-hmm. point." Like Mike Trout's going to be at the plate, and the the lights are going to come down and, hit him, <laughs> and kill him. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's, yeah, I, hopefully they can get something uh, figured out there soon. Because the, the, honestly, the fans who are like the diehards there who've stuck with them, mm-hmm. they've got to get the award for for best best fans in baseball, right? Talk, talk about loyalty, right there. Exactly. There's no doubt about it. And
0: like, I I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like again, I always go back to early two thousands and like so like before Moneyball was a movie, I was obsessed with that A's team, mm-hmm. and like just like that place used to rock like that. The Coliseum was awesome.
2: It's you crazy know. how many places have really awesome atmospheres and fan environments when you're good and you right. actually have like a team who's committed to being good and, and tr- tries like and obviously the money is the, yep. that's what the owners are in it for at the end of the day. But like fans respect trying to win the Padres yeah. haven't done it yet. And their environment is electric, electric. Yeah. Yep. So, and yeah. I mean, I think that's a great baseball city just because they're the only show in town amazing ballpark beautiful city and now they've got maybe the most talented lineup in baseball so yeah unbelievable unbelievable.
1: so i do have one more question about your
2: experiences at baseball america and then like i said
1: we'll we'll get in some more you know just baseball topics to begin with but you know i really want to know what's the best thing you've learned just whether it be at a field you know picking somebody's brain and then on top of that this could kind of connect to that one what's who's the biggest name in your phone
0: oh man um okay if it's eric neander can we call him
2: (laughs) i gotta scroll through the phone here okay so the first question is uh so alex anthopolis probably would be the top one so far that's pretty cool
0: it goes it goes alphabetical we're only in the a's we're only in the (laughs) a's this is fun
2: um Yeah, this is probably great podcast audio, too, with me just scrolling. So I'm trying to – I bought me with Junior. See, Count? That's probably my favorite one. He's he's probably my favorite prospect that I've covered in person. Him and Mackenzie Gore. I think I have Mackenzie's number. I hope these guys have changed their numbers by now. Um, (laughs) I talked to them when they were in high school. Um, Those ones would be good ones.
0: Yeah.
2: I could scroll, I guess, but – I don't nah, want to sit it, here. It was, it was well. enough. I found the
0: party trick. There's the icebreaker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what you use. Yeah,
2: that's a good one. Um, in terms of things that I've learned at the field, there's not one obvious one that just jumps out as some sort of like like dimension-shattering piece of information. I think the biggest thing is is truly like the more you learn about the game, I feel like the more it humbles you. Um. I know there are probably a lot of people who learn more about baseball and like you you probably have a tendency to think that you're just becoming more and more of an expert. But for me, I feel like the, the more I learn about the game, the more you realize how much you truly don't know, um, especially when you're looking at it from a player development perspective. You could have I mean, you just look at the success rates of the draft and who, who pans out, and who doesn't. Uh, how we viewed certain players as prospects, how we viewed certain players as non-prospects who didn't know anything about them. Um, Players themselves can change so quickly uh, just in terms of natural development that surprises you. Some players can just fail for reasons you have no clue about. I think makeup being something that's super important is probably very unsurprising for maybe people who have played or especially people who have coached like you guys have. But I think prior to doing this job, I remember hearing people talk about makeup and clubhouse chemistry and I kind of just scoffed at it as something like, Oh, like it's always funny how the teams that are winning suddenly have really good clubhouse chemistry. Like it's probably more about winning than clubhouse chemistry, but I do think makeup is, is massively important for um, just being successful in baseball because it is such a, such a sport of failure. Um, Being able to handle that consistently over and over again and dealing with the Miley grind, um, all that's super important. So now I think the biggest thing for me is just like to stay humble, stay open-minded. There are so many things that we're learning more and more every day. It seems like with the technology we have, uh, with the new tools that we have, we're finding a lot of ways to quantify things that, that scouts have known about for a long time and maybe just didn't have a precise way to measure it. And then there's still other things that we, we have no idea how to measure quantify or value objectively like deception for a pitcher. Uh, I think there's still a lot of mystery about how, how that really happens. So I think the biggest thing is just staying open-minded, um, trying to consistently learn about the game and, and talk to people who, who've been around the game for forever is, is really what I love about this job. Being able to talk to people like scouts, like coaches, like players. Um, but especially the scouts, that's, that's who I spend the most of my time talking to and it's, it's always enlightening. I wish I had some like very clear one, one thing that I've learned, but I, I really just think like the humbling of the game that it, that it provides you is is the best thing. No, I think in in reality, mm.
1: exactly what you said is probably the best answer you could have came up with because that's just one hundred percent the truth, mm. right? And and being able to have that that open mind to everything and you know be able to learn from other people. The best, I mean, we've both worked for very good head coaches. We've been out on the road recruiting. We've met division one head coaches. We've talked shop with the great baseball minds out on the road. And every single one of them is picking your brain more than you're picking their brain. It feels like, and that's one of the most impressive things for anybody that has success in the game of baseball and really outside the game of baseball, that's just mm-hmm. leadership and, and being management anyway. But to be able to have like a head coach who's won more ball games than you could ever imagine actually asking you what you think and, and yeah. learning from you is unbelievable. And it shows the humility that it takes to really be successful in this in this game. And one of the questions you mentioned drafting, obviously that's kind of your neck of the woods per se. And you know, Dan and I have conversations till we're blue in the face about all these different you know, opinions that we have and and how draft trends have gone. And one of the things that I would love to know your take on and more of the recent history of draft and how almost MLB organizations have gone to is kind of the elite stuff versus elite command conversation. I feel like every team is finding more and more guys with elite stuff late in the draft or developing elite stuff from guys late in the draft you're also starting to see guys with elite command early in the draft, taken and develop elite stuff. How has that changed? You know, you're in the projection business. Ultimately you're projecting every kid that gets drafted to be something you're, you're, trying to build them into an MLB star. How has that changed your perspective on what these assets are when they're being picked by MLB organizations because of those, you know, outcomes?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I think you see better stuff these days than you did in the past. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, There is a a bigger incentive for amateur players to develop velocity and to develop breaking balls. Um, Technology like Rapsodo and super high-speed cameras has allowed players to really optimize how they're throwing the baseball. Um, It sounds like you can – or it feels like you can basically – figure out a new pitch in an off season. So I think a lot of the training and development has taken massive leaps forward. And so throughout any given draft, you're seeing much better pure stuff. Uh, I think at the same time too, um, especially from the high school side, we've seen teams uh, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago selected for velocity, premium velocity at the very top of the draft. And and that player demographic specifically high school right-handers, uh, who are the hardest throwers in the class, haven't necessarily panned out too well. Um, I think there are some reasons maybe for that. It's It puts a lot more stress on your arm if you're throwing at these elite velocities at a young age before you're fully developed. There's some interesting studies that have come out in the past year that have looked at just um, reaching velocity thresholds before you are physically developed, um, what tearing your... UCL does to you as an 18-year-old or a 17-year-old compared to uh, what those effects are if you tear at 22 or 23. And so I think teams have realized that um, it's not necessarily the best thing in the world if you have a high school player who's throwing 97 when he's in high school. Uh, I think you typically assume that with high school players, they're just going to keep improving. There are a lot of players who threw the hardest they ever did in high school. They got hurt. They never fully came back. Um, And I also think the other aspect of it is probably the fact that teams seem to think that it's significantly easier to develop stuff uh, and to add velocity than it is to add command. Um, it seems like it's there's a much more systematic way to add better pitches um, to guys who can throw strikes at a high level than the opposite way. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to take that approach. Um, there have been a lot of teams who have done this successfully. Cleveland is probably the team that, that we cite the most on our podcast. I feel like we talk about Cleveland's pitching factory um, with me and Ben. We talk about that a ton. It's, it's something that a lot of teams are doing as well. They're not the only team that's doing that. Um, but yeah, I think there's no doubt that, that having good stuff is beneficial. There's, there's a strong correlation with, with velocity and success as a pitcher at the next level. I think it's just a question of like, as a high school player, there are a lot of bad incentives for players to not treat their arm properly with travel ball, with with showcases, with pitching to the radar gun, with, with getting involved in this sort of stuff when you're really, really young. Um, I was talking to uh, a coach that I know really well recently who was telling me about a father of, of a 12 year old and a nine year old. And he was like, Oh, I have uh, these measurements for, for my son. He's this percentile in his class. And I was like, Oh, this is so tough. Like this kid, first of all, is probably going to hate baseball by the time he's, he's done with this. Like he probably can't wait until his dad is off his back about how hard he's throwing compared to the 75th percentile of high school players at age 13. Um, also like, there's no like that might be bad for your development to be, to be focusing on this so much. So I think it's a really nuanced conversation in terms of like velocity and stuff and pitching and what, what you actually need. And I think when you need to be taking it seriously versus just having fun, um, from the youth side, but, um, I'm kind of rambling here, but those are kind of general
0: thoughts. Well, yeah, there's so much good stuff to unpack there. I just want to start off with a good point, and me and Trevor referenced this a couple of times on the show before. But like, you want to see a clean arm path. Give a four-year-old an implement to throw something and watch, because your body protects yourself. So like, you watch you watching the arm path of most four-year-olds, and sure, like their lower half doesn't know what it's doing, but like their arm path is perfect. Go watch a little league game and watch some of the arm paths of these kids who have been coached a bunch into pitching, mm-hmm. and it's like it hurts. That, it's that's- like.
2: A really interesting point because the one that i was always told was um that toddlers have like ideal squatting form when they're young they squat like perfectly without putting their back in position to do damage just because like that's how the body works um but there's i don't do a ton of work in this area because i'm not focused on like very young high schoolers thankfully or middle schoolers but I could definitely see it being super problematic that there is a ton of overcoaching. I was just talking to a scout the other day who was—I am not going to name any names or or players with this um, one—but it's like an elite draft prospect. Um, And this guy was talking about how this player had changed their mechanics for no reason, and they were like, "I was like, oh, why?" They were just like, "Oh, that's just what they teach there." I was like, "Okay, that doesn't make any sense to me." But all right, it's not like he was—he was not having success prior to the mechanical change. Um, but yeah, that, that definitely could be an issue. I'm, I'm, I try to say this as much as possible. I'm not a coach. I'm not a, like a mechanics guru. And I think even if you look at the big league level, um, I mean, you mentioned it in terms of just like you, you're throwing naturally how it works for you and how your body wants to throw. There are so many different deliveries that work at the big league level. There are so many different swings that work at the big league level. Maybe there's something that's optimal in a vacuum, but every, everyone's body is built differently, works differently. It has different, Um, strengths and weaknesses so yeah i think it's it's very dicey uh to start getting in there and and mixing that up because you want a 12 year old to reach some peak velocity
0: right and i don't want to again i don't want to turn this into just bashing certain people who who do things but imagine if chris sale like went to one of those places and like that's Mm -hmm. what they taught like yeah you wouldn't have chris sale who like chris sale you like i mean how many people that if chris sale was 12 years old right now would be like, oh no! Like we have to change everything. Mm-hmm. Like and Chris exactly. Sale, and and that's part of what makes Chris Sale special, right? It's 100%. like just, just how that delivery looks. And then, I guess my question for you would then become a little bit of you know everything today is we're in such a specialized society with everything, especially when you look at youth sports and stuff like that. And and I know you're not an, an expert in, in youth sports, but where does the shift come from then? Because if we're going to continue down this road, and if you're looking at how MLB organizations are drafting and what they're looking at from projection wise when does that when did we ever align then because if, if MLB teams are like well I don't want my high schoolers to be necessarily throwing 97 plus because that's maybe not beneficial for the arm because as you said I've read the same studies and you know I've had my players in technology that tells me the force each throw makes and a lot of times the fastball is the worst for your elbow for a lot of guys so when does it become okay we're gonna shift from how we're training all of these guys at this young of an age, to throw 98 so they can get drafted out of high school if that's maybe not what ML te- MLB teams want?
2: Yeah, well, I think it's a good question. It's it's a tough one. I, I think you see similar problems with with basketball, honestly. It sounds like Steph Curry being Steph Curry has changed a lot of how youth basketball works, and I know there's a lot of – I've just heard kind of from from being a general sports fan um, that there's been a lot of, of, of similar issues in that regard where players are just like – have terrible shooting mechanics because they're trying to shoot these D3s before they're really strong enough to do it. Um, so I think there's always going to be some sort of emulation that happens because all these young players love the game. They they want to be like the people they're looking at. And when you see a velocity reading on a big league game, and in a lot of ways that's that's something you're never going to get away from. People are going to want to throw hard. I mean, when you play baseball, if you pitch, you're going to want to just throw hard. I think probably the biggest thing in terms of like systemic issues that maybe we can solve in the future is – um, the way that colleges scout teams. I know there are a lot of college coaches who don't like the fact that they have to scout so young, but they're in a competitive business um, and they have to. If, if their peers and the, the people they're competing against are recruiting younger and younger, um, you, you kind of have to do the same thing or, or get left by the wayside. So it's either kind of dive into those waters as well and just acknowledge like this is kind of the system we're in. It sucks, but I, I'm trying to keep my job. We're trying to win. Um, you have to do that, whether that's putting restrictions on um, what age a player needs to be before you can officially uh, scout them and communicate with them. I think there are some steps that the NCAA has probably already taken. Again, I'm not an expert in this space, but I feel like for a large majority of the people in the amateur space, it's not. Um, maybe maybe they don't know this, but it, it's it's not a draft problem, but. A, large, a much larger number of people are going to play college baseball in some capacity, whether that's division one, whether that's power five, whether that's junior colleges. Um, obviously there's a significantly num- significantly larger number of players who are going to play at the next level in college um, and a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of high school players who are signing uh, straight out of high school and going to the pros, especially after we went to the 20 round draft. So I think, a lot of that could hopefully be addressed uh, at that level, but I mean, travel ball and showcases in general have has become just such a big industry. Um, I don't know what the best way to kind of put that back in the box is, um, outside of maybe if the incentives are no longer aligned to where you're if you're going to this event at age 10, there's no there's no one here who's going to see you. Um, maybe maybe the importance of that event for for a youth parent is lessened and and that people feel like there's not a need for that, but it's clearly not the healthiest system in the world, especially if you pair that sort of like incessant travel ball culture with, we have all these metrics now uh, and we have to be at the top of all these metrics for our age group, like lessening the importance of numbers for kids that young, I feel like could help Um, and just establishing like, playing the game we have we have such a, a game culture too here rather than practice i know that's right. something ben has talked about recently like in latin america it's much more of like a development in a practice culture and we're all about playing games um so there's a lot of things that are we could probably unpack there but hopefully someone smarter than me is able to yeah. to figure it out and and maybe tap into some of the solutions
0: it's just, to me, a fascinating problem, and I think, like, it, it also, which is a, a whole other issue, but then it also makes it become more of an exclusive thing. Like, you're pushing away a lot of good kids at that age who don't want to play because of that stuff, and, like, they're not in it for that. And then stories yep. like Lorenzo Cain will never happen because those kids never wanted to pick up a, a bat or a ball because if they weren't on the elite team at age 13, they didn't want to mm-hmm.
2: play. Yep. I think that's another massively important point. I, I constantly worry about baseball becoming a rich kid's sport and right. something where uh, we really gatekeep players who just haven't been able to experience it at that level who we want in baseball. We want great athletes. We want people from from different backgrounds to be able to play the game. And if the, way, the only way you're getting to college is by playing travel ball and going to these showcase events that cost a lot of money, that's obviously a problem. I think they're – Um, There are some organizations who are doing good things in terms of scholarships and funding to help players um, who don't have the means to be able to take part in that. So I think there are positives there. Um, But yeah, I I think that's also another one where the college system could be a lot better. There's constantly been issues with college scholarships in baseball. Um, There's a reason that all of our best athletes play football and basketball. And I think it's very clearly just the fact that Uh, You can go to college uh, on a full ride in those sports much easier. So if you're an elite athlete in multiple sports and you maybe prefer baseball uh, or or even if you like them the same, you're you're a great football player, a good, great baseball player. You like them both. But football is the one that's going to get you to college. It's not surprising where people are going to play. So I feel like if we can make it easier um, for players to play the game, that, that, that has to be beneficial. Right. We'll benefit as fans of the game. Um, just by seeing better athletes in baseball, because it is such a specialized sport, right? Um, it's not like you can just, uh, Jimmy Graham it. No, right. I don't know who the other examples are of someone who, <laughs> That's a perfect who didn't play line. baseball, um, yeah. for a long time, but it's significantly harder to make up for the lost abs in baseball than I would imagine the reps for, for football. So you mentioned
1: something, and obviously I'm going to kind of diverge from from the track of talking about the development of youth. I, I want to talk about the development of guys that get into pro organizations. And you mentioned what Bennett talked about with how we are a game-focused uh, culture in baseball specifically, and overseas, they're more developmentally focused. And we had a conversation on our, on this podcast one episode a couple of weeks ago um, about from my understanding, it was the Indians that were kind of taking guys into their organization and almost putting them on the back burner for a second and letting them develop a little bit more and taking them away from the game. And it was something that I always had the theory of, of like, Hey, like kind of almost like a red shirt, right? Like you get a guy in a college game and he hits the weight room hard. He eats, he adds the mm-hmm. weight and all those things like that. And, you can kind of then put them on the field with a fresh off season of strength because Colin on our podcast, obviously like he had that huge COVID year where COVID was a blessing for him. He was 91 to 93 consistent in college, good command. He goes and lifts heavy and he was sitting 97, 98 and the instructs with the A's and everybody was like, where did that come from? Well, I got, six months of heavy (laughs) lifting and finally got to Mm -hmm. heal my body because we play so much baseball in college. It's spring, Cape Cod, fall ball, four or five weeks, and then you're kicking it off trying to face 94, 96. So I'd love to know your opinion on that of the benefits potentially of taking a guy back because nowadays you can get to game speed, at least offensively, with the pitching machines we have, with short boxes from a coach. He can mix. He can spin. You can do everything. You don't even need to get necessarily game at bats. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. I think um, I'll be open-minded to whatever teams thought was was kind of uh, at the, the cutting edge of player development there. I think especially for pitchers, it seems to make a lot of sense to me that the offseason and actually resting can be massively beneficial. We see it every year just from a draft perspective. Players um, who come out after a strong offseason who are just throwing significantly better stuff. So, um, again, while we're focused on on all the games uh, in general with our culture, a lot of work happens off the field. Um, you mentioned Colin and the lifting. That, that seems like something that is becoming more and more um understood I think from a lot of people realizing the benefits of weightlifting of strength training of nutrition um but yeah I think from a draft perspective maybe one of the benefits of a later draft date a lot of people in the industry don't like the later draft date just because it creates a lot of complications um I think it's Great from, from a fan's perspective because there's no overlap with, with college baseball's World Series and, and postseason. I think it's beneficial from that perspective. I think it being tied to the All-Star game is good, but we have seen teams, and the Guardians are one of them, who really didn't activate many of their players they drafted at all. Uh, and so I think that time that you can get a player either just simply to rest from their college season and not have to worry about performing in a high-stress environment after you've already burnt out uh, from a full college season and some summer events in some cases – it can be beneficial. Get into the system, see what pro ball is like. What are the expectations here? Uh, what do you need to do off the field in terms of getting ready for that competition? Uh, just recovering, simply resting, whether it's uh, recovering from injuries, some of the, the smaller stuff that maybe you can play through that you don't necessarily need to. Um, some of this is probably to do with the lack of lower level minor league teams from the restructuring of minor league baseball. I think largely that's probably a negative for player development, particularly players coming straight out of high school, but if you can pivot that into an opportunity to maybe not throw someone straight into game situations and, and find a way to benefit from that, I think that could be massively important. I think for hitters, I don't know. I would I would like to hear what people say about some of the uh, the ways that you can simulate live abs without actually being in live abs. I, I do think it's it's tough to to fully replicate that, but um, we've seen so many different developments in, in, in pitching development and hitting development, it seems like pitching is always kind of at the, at the forefront ahead of the hitters. But um, if there's a way to do that without being in lag games constantly, I I think that could be definitely beneficial. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so impressive because you you mentioned that
1: pitching has always been at the forefront because I was, we had Matt Mervis on uh, this past weekend and, and I was talking to him and Colin about it. It's pitching so cut and dry, like either your fastball rides or it doesn't. Either it sinks or it cuts. Your curveball spins or it doesn't. Hitting, there's so many feels. There's so many thoughts. It's it's like the whole like there's so much to unpack. It's like the the crazy thing that Matt talked about is his alignment is to left center field, but mm-hmm. he's a pull hitter. And when he was in college, he when he tried to pull the ball, his front side would fly open and he hooked a lot of balls, valley top spin, he'd roll them over, flare them the other way. He can never get that flush barrel unless he was perfectly on time. And it was resetting his sights to almost be like, Hey, I need to think to left center field. And it allows me to pull the ball with authority. And then mm-hmm. he blows up and it that's part of the reason. And, and I'd love to know kind of your comparison of, I mean, how hard it is to develop hitters because of that. And like you said, I mean, it's hard to get game speed at bats if you're not getting regular at bats. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting conversation. I, I feel like too with hitting is so difficult because you're reacting. Like with pitching, you are you're establishing everything that you want to do. And as a hitter, you just have to react to that. So not only do you have to have the the eyesight to to pick up the ball, to recognize pitches, to understand what you can do. Is and I think this is maybe one of the biggest challenges for for players as they come into pro ball is all of these hitters who are drafted and going to pro ball, they can pretty much do whatever they want to the play at the high school level, especially like these guys can hit whatever they want. And so once you get to the next level and you're facing better stuff, you're facing much higher quality breaking balls. I think for a lot of players and, I, and I've covered a few players just, just doing handbook chapters uh, for Baseball America uh, each year where players simply haven't closed holes that they have because they think they can do damage at every part of the plate and they just haven't trained themselves to stop swinging at pitches they can't do damage with. Um, And they're hurting themselves by not doing that. So it's incredibly difficult to be a hitter. I think it's the hardest thing in the world from from a sports perspective to do, um, to hit a baseball. I mean, we're constantly finding ways to analyze why pitches are so good. Uh, It's no surprise that it's tough to hit. I think – From a scouting perspective, from a draft perspective, having confidence in a hitting evaluation is also the hardest thing. Um, Whether that's because you're scouting a high school hitter who is 17 years old and has six years of development from now and when he's supposed to be in the majors, um, you could be dealing with a player who you only have a very small sample of him facing 90 plus mile per hour fastballs. Like, there are, there are physical tools that you can look at and try and, and see how he's going to adjust to pitching at the next level. But at the end of the day, you never really know for sure. Um, a lot of that's just going to depend on the development of the player. Um, and it, it's so difficult but in terms of like how hard it is to hit and how you develop a good hitter. I mean, whoever can answer that question and find a systemic way is going to make a lot of money. Because uh, I just think it's, it's fundamentally the hardest thing in the game to do. That's why um, young elite hitters get paid the way they do. Um, well, We can get into some of the nitty gritties about it, but I mean, you need bat speed, you need you need an approach, you need strength. If You can basically understand which pitch is a swing at, Uh, have the ability to make contact and have the ability to hit the ball hard. I think those are three key areas. Um, There's so many different moving parts within that. Like you guys were both talking about at the beginning of this, there's so many different factors getting into the right positions, having a a strong kinetic chain as a hitter, uh, understanding how to go with the ball where it's pitched. uh, And and there's so much mental stuff that goes into the game. When you're at the plate, if you're, if you're facing a guy like Jacob deGrom, I don't even know how, how players go about processing what to do in that in that environment so it's honestly a miracle we have people who are hitting 97 mile per hour fastballs uh, 400 feet as often as they are i think but it's 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 tough business
0: it's uh, degrom my first my first thought is degrom is you close your eyes and swing um but me and trevor were just having that conversation the other day about like how do these guys hit because there was a There was a, someone put on Twitter uh, like a behind the plate view of, I think it was Skeens and, and Brody breck right trevor and it was just like their fastballs and it was like how do you make contact and then it's like yeah but then you turn on a big league game and it's like oh there's 98 i'm just going to deposit it it's yeah same but oh when and it's talk- this random reliever who's throwing 98 that yeah, you, don't, you, the, you didn't know existed who, who's throwing that especially this time of year right like here mm-hmm. comes a guy for like the casual fan here comes a guy with no name on the back of his uni and like he can't get out of the inning even though he's 96 <laughs> to 98 it's like yeah, yeah that makes no sense it's it's ridiculous um when you talk about hitters though and like there's obviously physical tools that that can answer some of your questions right that you can see at a young age but what's the kind of your thought process behind evaluating and then even valuing you know the difference between a guy who's got really good bat to ball skills and a guy who's got more swing and miss but has the raw power right is it just a, a, a the bat to ball at least we know he can get to stuff and then it's about <laughs> putting on um you know, wait. And I forget you guys were talking on the pod the other day about a uh, Garrett Mitchell, right? Like here's a guy who's, who's for years, everyone's like, well, if he can put on, he can, he can fix the swing and he can start to lift the ball a little bit, but he hasn't. So where's the, where's the valuation between guys with the, the bat to ball and the guys with the, the swing and miss, but there's a ton of raw power there.
2: Yeah. I think it's probably a sliding scale, right? Like if you have a player with elite bat to ball skills, like a Nick ball you're going to be okay. If he doesn't have, elite power, um, at least understanding that, that he probably can have some sort of offensive value for you. Um, I think he's shown that at, at, at some level uh, he can hang in the big leagues and, and make a lot of contact. If you're a guy who swings and misses a ton, you are going to need to hit the ball really hard when you do make contact. So th- there's some sliding scale. There's probably a sweet spot in the middle. That's why players like Dylan Cruz and, and Wyatt Langford in this year's class, to use a few examples, that's why they're at the top of the class because They not only make a lot of contact, but they also drive the ball with impact when they do. Um, And so once you get to either of those extremes, your skill in either department has to be elite for you to not just not be able to overcome the weaknesses. Um, I think including that would be like just pitch recognition as well. If you can, if you don't make great contact, but you also have an excellent understanding of the zone, and you hit for power, and you also get on base a lot. I, I think there is still um, roles for a player like that at the next level. So I think it's just kind of looking at what you do well, what you don't do well. Do your strengths make up for your weaknesses? And when you combine all those parts, what's the overall profile that you are looking at? And kind of pairing that with your defensive value, what's the sort of player that that you are looking at overall? Because if you are if you are looking at if you are looking at a forty hitter with fifty power and you're a great shortstop, that's pretty solid. If you're that offensive profile and you can only play first base, well, you probably don't have a job in the big leagues. So all of these are kind of moving around together, um, and, and there, there are so many different var- And I'm hopeful that the, the new rules that we're seeing in big league ball will allow for a greater variety of offensive profiles because we have gotten to such a, a power um, dominant offensive profile in the big leagues just because you, you're not able to string together enough hits um, to find value at the big league level because the pitching is so good. So hopefully these new rule changes will allow for even greater diversity of skill sets at the, at the big league level. I think that would just be fun to see. Um, but I think you're kind of always measuring these things um, and then combining it together to see what the overall profile looks like.
1: Yeah, I always, I always think of hitting as, um, like like you said, when you mentioned the sliding scale, it always, you know, because nowadays, because I was at the D3 level, Dan was at the D2 level, we've both coached guys that are going to play at the D1 level, and one is currently playing at the D1 level. One is actually, that I coach, is actually going to UNC next year from the D3 level, so he ended up getting an offer from there. He's going to go play there. And, you know, I always believed that hitting on a sliding scale is your athleticism and your swing mechanics, right? Like if you have elite athleticism with a below average swing, that'll take you up to a certain level of where your athleticism can carry you, right? For some guys, that's the MLB. I mean, Aiden McIntyre talked about it when he was with on here with us, where he was like, some guys could make four years in the MLB, but their ceiling's 10 years in the MLB. That's just how – good of an athlete that they are that's how good their stuff is and I kind of thought of hitting in the same way of you know like I've seen guys with elite athleticism that play division three baseball and just hit 550 with power and run Mm -hmm. the bases but then they go to the Cape Cod in the summer and get blown up because their swing when they're on a level playing field with those athletes is not it doesn't work anymore you can't just out athlete 94 on your hands with run. Like you just can't do it anymore and then mm-hmm. you're working a slider off of it. So, you know, when you're evaluating hitters, like, is there mm-hmm. a swing component that you like to see? Is it short, compact? Like you see a mm-hmm. Dylan Cruz who's short and compact and the swing's consistent and he's able to kind of almost get to everything. You see the bats in the hitting zone for a long time. What, what's mm-hmm. kind of some of those things that you might look for?
2: Yeah, for me, I don't I don't get too caught up over the mechanics again, just because I, I don't feel like I'm an expert in that area and there's so many swings that can work at the big league level. I think in general you want to if you're a hitter who can get on time consistently, get in the right launch position consistently, what you do before that doesn't necessarily matter to me too much. Like for example, one of my favorite hitters from this year's draft class is Aiden Miller. He has a pretty significant hitch in his swing. And I think generally people throw a hitch in a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to throw off your timing. It's going to get your hands maybe under the ball. Um, There are a lot of things that could go wrong with the hitch, but his bat speed is so good uh, that the hitch is almost a timing mechanism for him. And he has shown an ability to be on time against good velocity. He has shown an ability to make adjustments against quality off-speed offerings and secondary pitches. Uh, And he has the bat speed and strength to drive the ball, the ball with impact when he does that, that hitch for him isn't an issue. If you have another player who either doesn't have that sort of pure bat speed or doesn't have his pitch recognition, um, maybe the hitch is then an issue. So I think it's, it's very much player, player to player depends on the skill that he brings. Like you said, your athleticism can carry you to a certain level for some players. um, A swing with some moving parts might be okay because they can out-athlete the swing itself for other players who are not uh, standout athletes compared to their peers. Maybe they're going to be that player who really needs to make the swing as efficient as possible, be elite timing guys, uh, and, and leave. They're going to have a smaller margin for error than someone with, with much better athleticism or pure bat speed. Um, so I think it's just player dependent. Um, different swings can work for different skill sets, Uh, players with power you want to see them elevate the ball like we talked about last week with Garrett Mitchell but he's also a guy who who happens to be a 70 or an 80 grade runner so maybe there is a way for him to be successful without making that swing tweak Um, it kind of just depends Uh, there's no one thing I think that's that's a deal breaker for me Mm -hmm. Um, I think ideally when I hear Ben talk about hitting I was like it all the hitters that he likes he he talks about their swings as being direct and being compact and being uh, on plane with the ball very consistently. Those are all things that you would want in a swing in ideal world. But I don't necessarily think that not having one of those um, means you're not going to make it. it. It probably just means you're going to have to make up for that in some other areas. Well, and I even think
1: that some guys that have that short, compact swing kind of lose athleticism because they're trying to swing almost I used to say swing in a phone booth. Right and and what was what you were saying about different hitters having different you know styles like to me as somebody who you know I have my beliefs on the swing I worked with hitters I've been in the cage Alex Bregman's swing is perfect right because he knows what he's capable of I wouldn't say Alex Bregman's the best athlete in the world um, I don't think that's a hot take to go out and say. Um, but he understands he can get to the poolside. He's not going to hook anything foul. Everything's going to be backspin. All he has to do is hit it 340 feet, which at 88 miles per hour, you can hit a ball 340 feet if you're at the right launch angle. And he doesn't miss when he does. I mean, that's how you can be five, a generous five foot 10, five foot 11 and hit 30, 40 home runs in the big leagues and win MVPs. And then you have a guy like Javier Baez, who's a mutant athletically, who is potentially the best athlete on the planet could probably be playing any other sport in the world. <laughs> and it has so many moving parts and you see the hands and it's so pretty and it's so fun to watch, but who's more prone to streakiness who's kind of struggled as the, mm-hmm. as the game has evolved and people can expose him. So what's so impressive is obviously those, you know, the organizational side of things. And what are some things that anecdotally you've seen that organizations putting hitters in a position to be successful what are whether it be theories or things that you've heard of you know because it seems like there's certain organizations that mm-hmm. can fix anybody and then there's certain organizations that anything they touch mm-hmm. is like turns to just like crap but what are some things that you've kind of seen in from that department
0: this
2: is a great question because it's something that i want to figure out specifically with baltimore I think I've talked about this one a lot recently, but it really feels like they have done an excellent job with hitting development. Um, Gunnar Henderson's ascent to top prospect in baseball is impressive. Um, It's obviously hard to, to take out what is the player just making those gains versus what is the organization putting him in a position to excel. I think it's certainly both. Um, there's no real need to to identify exactly what percentages is on the player and what's on the organization, but really just going through their system, looking at our reports. I didn't, I didn't do this chapter, but just reading through it, I came away struck by how many players they have improved their offensive performance. Uh, it seems like they have a good understanding of how to actually make those swing changes um, that we were talking about that, that Garrett Mitchell hasn't been able to make for whatever reason. Um, so I would love to talk with, people involved in their organization uh, some of their hitting people to figure out like what is, what are they actually doing? Um, is it a mechanical adjustment? Is it a more of an approach based uh, coaching that they're doing? Um, there are a lot of things that, that I'm still kind of in the dark with as to what is the best way to develop hitters. It is such a difficult thing to do. Um, so I don't know that I have the answer necessarily. And I do think that that maybe it, it is easier to try and coach an approach versus to coach a specific swing and you guys would probably actually have a much better idea of like what is easy to get a hitter to change. Um, do you start with um, kind of the movement patterns you want him, want him to emulate or do you start with like an outcome and, and find um, various ways for him to get to that point? Um, I would be curious to talk to people who actually have been doing this, but I don't, I don't necessarily know that I have the best example when you were talking though, I was curious who you think have the prettiest swings in the game and then I'm also curious, like, what are the biggest challenges with you? Because I do feel like with hitters, different different players have very different feels for their own body and how it moves in space. And like, getting someone to change something they've been doing for so long has to be super. It almost feels as as difficult as is changing like how you throw, which in some ways seems supernatural to to each each person. Trevor's so.
0: answer here is going to be anybody coached by Kevin Long. Yes. Yeah. So I,
1: have a, I have, Yeah. So. I have an obsession with Kevin Long, and, and I'm a Nationals fan. Not anymore. Yeah. Like, like you said, when you start following the base, game of baseball nationally, it's hard to like lock in on one team. And root. Yeah, Dan's a Phillies fan, so it's easier to root when they're when, making the World Series than winning board games <laughs> or whatever. But watching Kevin Long and watching the adjustments that Soto made an adjustment when he at the big league level between one year one and year two. And mm-hmm. you know, it started to point some things out to me in the swing that I believed were every hitter can move a certain way, they can stand a certain way. But these are kind of, if you want to have success at the level that Juan Soto was have, you have to kind of a what we've heard for the longest time: your bat has to be in the hitting zone for an eternity, and b you have to be on plane for a really long time. It's not that that difficult. And then I saw Kyle Schwarber come over and. The adjustment he made from the Cubs to the Nationals was mainly because of Kevin Long, and it started to look a lot similar to Juan Soto. And basically, the whole concept that I believe and we've never had Kevin Long confirm this, but Brandon Marshall also made a similar adjustment. And you start to see kind of similar things, and it's just being on plane from shoulder plane. So the swing, technically the swing, if you're standing straight up, is the same as when you're bent over almost taking a golf swing and everything just stays flat off a of shoulder height yeah. and all Juan Soto does is match his plane of the pitch with his bend so all you're doing and you know i always tell hitters when we were working in the cage when you see a low and out change up or a slider as a righty 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 on righty or lefty facing a change up mm-hmm. your natural inclination is to bend because you see it going there if the only thing you're changing is your bend because you naturally match plane you're going to be on plane for a long time So that's kind of where I look at the non-negotiables of the swing is you could stand like Kevin Euclid, but if you're not on plane and if you're not flat and consistent in the hitting zone for a long time, you're going to have a hard time hitting elite pitching is pretty Mm -hmm. much what it comes down to. So when I look at my prettiest swings, it's the Juan Soto's, obviously the adjustments Kyle Schwarber's made, Alex Bregman, and these are all guys that in the game today can hit the high fastball too. And I think there's a reason for that because when you're trying to hit a pitch with hop, If you're Joey Gallo, if you're Cody Bellinger, which I love those guys, they all have their unique skill set. When you're trying to work uphill, you can't hit 88 with hop well-located. I mean, Mm -hmm. Joey Gallo, when he was scuffling with the Yanks last year, was swinging through sinkers up in this zone. that's how exposed he was was because and the difference the margin of error is like this thin it's not like a d3 guy who's in and out of the hitting zone like i've seen mm-hmm. like no joey gallows bats in the hitting zone for way longer than people probably want to give him credit for because he's an elite athlete and he's made it he's made success at that level and it's just it's crazy to think about so when i think about the guys with the Beautiful swings that I, I think of. It's, it's those guys that kind of have those repeatable mechanics that that are on plane for a long time, and just everything is just off a side bend, low and out swings different than the high and in, and that's how you cover the plate the way a guy like Juan Soder does, and that's how you hit forty
2: five pumps like Kyle Schwarber did. How about you, Dan?
0: Well, see, I'm 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 a pitching guy uh, by trade, <laughs> but uh, for me, just I just want to go back to real quick, Trev, because a lot of my hitting comes from. Trevor and also um, the school I worked at has an unbelievable hitting coach who was actually hired by the Orioles, but had a, a six-month-old baby, and then was like, "I I can't do it. Like I got, I want to stay home and watch my kid grow up." So he ended up yeah. turning it down um, right when Sig got there. So it was um, one of those first years of the new regime. And uh, but for me, just to Trevor's point there, and, and uh, our hitting coach talked about the Ben too, is like it's when I started to learn it and then I watch film of Barry Bonds I go oh this makes so much sense now Mm -hmm. because like yeah Bonds would always be like here but then when he would go to launch he was here and then he would just he would just everything was off his shoulders and so then you start to watch that swing so to me um I'm gonna not try and sound like a fanboy so I'm not gonna say Harper Schwarber although I am a Phillies fan Harper's
2: mine so if it makes you feel better I'm picking Harper there you go for lefty Harper for lefty for sure
0: a guy I have a huge crush on, especially right now, and, and Trevor does as well as Corey Seager. I mean, I I yes. actually I I was supposed to be working, but I had their game on the other yesterday in spring training, and he came up to the plate, and I just happened to pull out my phone and, and video it. And he hit a high fastball that was I think ninety four, ninety five. That was at his letters, and just the way he stayed, and he just he just crushed it out to left field, and it was just like he did not like his bat was just like it matched like Trevor saying it just matched the plane. It was just so yeah. quick and just like from here to here and just stayed on top of it. Where, yeah. When we started to throw fastballs with Hop, um, which a, a lot of that can be credited back to the Astros who kind of started to find that, Um, like those like you, you, you used to see guys getting blown up up in the zone. And now hitters are starting to catch up on that. And uh, I just think like – just from my pitching mindset like if Christian Javier had pitched in 2015 in the big leagues with what his fastball does he would have won three Cy Young's right that that if you watch Cole and Verlander like that's Mm -hmm. what the the change for Garrett Cole was he went to an organization that actually believed in in not throwing sinkers down in the zone you know what I mean like the Pirates did like he just started like punishing so to me pretty swings are the guys who like Trevor said can just like match that and just make it look like it's nothing
2: It will be interesting to see how this like next generation of players, the swings will look different because the high fastball is such a prized uh, weapon these days. Obviously the hitters are going to be trained to combat that. So whether or not we go back into another cycle where we're sinkers down the zone, then become an optimal strategy uh, will be fun. And I do Mm -hmm. like the fact that the baseball seems to be cyclical in a lot of different ways. It's amazing. Uh,
0: And to your point, what was the Astros' bullpen last year? Right? It's split. It's split the, every single guy in that bullpen throws a split-finger sp- split fastball, right? Because that's mm-hmm. something that's just going to dive down and away on you. And we're almost – right, Rafael Montero also has a turbo sinker. Like, so I, I do, I think, I think some of those teams that you see typically at the start of that trend are already starting to turn it right. Like the yeah. Astros are going to be, you know, that bullpen is a lot of turbo sinker and splitter guys already. <laughs> and it's like, well, look, their bullpen was the best we've seen in years because everyone's gearing up like again out and even Framber, right? Like Framber's he can elevate, but Framber's getting a lot of his work done down in the zone already because, yep. you know, he tortured Schwarber that entire series. Because he's like, was Schwarber's now trained to swing to like really, you know, combat the high fastballs, which is what he was getting blown up with four years ago. And now Framber's turbo synchron at his back knee and he can't, he can't handle it. Yeah,
2: it is a game of adjustments. That's why it's so awesome because all these little details and these little strategical changes and, and what becomes popular and how you have to change yourself to adjust to that. And then, and then readjusting again, uh, being able to succeed the big leagues for a long time is, is super impressive, um,
0: Yeah. It's cool to watch it happen. When you watch guys like Cabrera and pool holes, it's why it's just like mind blowing to see the careers that like, how did you do that for that long?
2: Miguel Cabrera is probably my family's favorite player because we got to watch him a lot with the Mudcats uh, Mm. in Carolina. Uh, He was left fielder at the time when we went to watch him and we were like, Oh, this guy's awesome. And the fact that he's still playing uh, is, is super cool. It's incredible. No, that, that that's
1: awesome. And, and, I mean, what a conversation that, that last little stretch was. I, I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed just being a fly on the wall, but back oh, to your, too. Corey, yeah, back to your Corey Seeger point too, Dan, is if you go back and watch the home run derby for me, that was, I guess I might have put the explicit one on this, but that was literally hitting porn because he had the <laughs> BP guy throwing high and in fastballs. And all he was doing was just like filleting balls with backspin to the pool side. And just like, it was like, why would you like you think about it? You're like, why would he want high end in fastballs? And then you start to see his moves and you're like, Oh, this is like work for him. Like he's putting in work because he knows he's like, I can take a ball off my front hip and I won't hook it foul. I will backspin it right off the pole every time. And that's all I have to do. I don't even have to hit big flies to center field because I'm not Aaron judge. I'm not strong enough to do that. And he's just like, literally tucking balls high and in off of the pole. And I was like, that was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I sent it to like 10 guys that hit at. Arcadia where I worked, I was like, see, this is what I wanted you guys to do. If you're <laughs> wondering, I know we could never get there. Where were you guys you court, court where were scene. you guys
2: when I was in high school hitting around every single <laughs> baseball that I ever saw?
0: Don't worry, Carlos. I the reason I yeah. know this is because I hit around. Right. I was gonna, right. gonna say I was in high school throwing eighty-two trying to figure out how to get people out and not being mm-hmm. successful. <laughs> That's where I so, was. There, I,
1: I came up with this theory because I hooked more homers foul than I hit in my life and I tops one <laughs> (laughs) rounders to the full side at at 90 plus and i was like why can't i pull anything with backspin and then it was like after i finished playing i was like oh of course
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's great
1: so but it's better to learn now than than never but you know there are a couple of other things that, that I did want to ask you about. I mean, obviously, we want to be respectful of your time, but but we're having a good time here, so might as well keep talking baseball. So, you know, as we kind of talk about organizations, um, you know, and obviously the ones that do it well and, and the ones that have always done it well, and then ones that are kind of on the rise, I would say like the Phillies on the pitching side are, are one of the teams that are kind of on the rise with with kind of the changes that they've made. What are some things that that you have noticed that these teams either, A, prioritize um, or what has allowed them to be successful, whether it be recently or teams like the Dodgers, the Guardians, the Rays, and, you know, the Astros obviously have developed at the major league level at a Mm -hmm. rate, but what are kind of the things that from your opinion, they've done such a good job on the draft and player
2: development? Yeah. The number one thing that I go to now when I, when I get this question is um, communication between departments because I've asked teams this exact question, like the teams who do it really well, the teams who are consistently um, just kind of dominating in in every area. I was like, well, like, what is the secret? Uh, And consistently from multiple organizations, the teams who do it well have told me that like having good communication between departments is the key between everything they do. I think even still today, there are probably some some teams who don't do a great job communicating from player acquisition, amateur or pro, with uh, player development, with uh, the analysts in the front office, um, being able to communicate with all those departments so everyone's on the same page about what we're looking for, what we can develop well, what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are, and how that relates to the players we're acquiring, um, the specific traits of players that we value, specific traits that we can do a lot with, specific traits that we don't really know how to do a lot with, Being able to, as an amateur scout, send a video to a hitting instructor in your organization who is coaching players at the pro level, being able to pick their brain about a swing. Um, I feel like it elevates everyone in the organization and also just puts everyone on the same page uh, about what's going on. And I feel like it's probably a really boring answer because I remember when I was told this, I was like, "Um, oh, like really communications as lame. Like what's the secret sauce? Like what's the, what's in the model? What What do you have? Like, what's the cool stuff? But I really think that when you're dealing with organizations that are that big and you have that many moving parts and you're dealing with so many individuals on the baseball field who are, were are so unique and different, like really just having a good communication system and being able to, Sort of have that group think in a in an organized way is massively beneficial. I think the other one, and I feel like the industry is much more on board with this one and doing this one better. At least it's from the outside looking in, it feels like there are more teams who are, who are at least giving this one lip service that I've heard about is just individualized um, player development plans. You had mentioned Garrett Cole and the Pirates, and it really feels like they had a lot of issues trying to force players into that sort of sinker ball approach that really didn't have the traits to benefit from it, e- even if it maybe was also no longer the, the pitching meta at the big league level. But I feel like there are approaches that will work for certain players. That doesn't necessarily mean every single player in the organization will find success with that approach. I mean, there are different pitchers who, if they have a high release point um, and high riding life, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that their fastball is going to be unhittable. I, I've looked at a couple of pitchers in this year's draft class, so I, I see the induced vertical break of their fastball. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a great pitch. Now I look at the results, and it's terrible. And it's because they don't have a, a low attack angle. They don't have a lot of deception on the pitch. They're not locating it uh, where they probably need to be to be getting the most success. And, and when they miss, those qualities maybe even help hitters leave the yard with that pitch. So I think um, just being able to individually assess every single player and having the development uh, infrastructure in place to take the time to work with every player individually. I know a long time ago you would hear about stories where the org types, the org players, uh, they were kind of afterthoughts um, and if they could get the coaching at the end of the day, they would take it. But the, the players who were drafted high, the big signing bonus guys, those were the ones who got all the attention I think teams realize now that you need to be taking every single player in the system seriously. Um, because again, like we talked about a lot earlier, you never know what a development path is going to look like with a player. Um, if you can take the time to, to have an individualized specific plan in place and try and cater to a player's strengths um, and help communicate with them what they do well, what they can do better. All of these things I feel like are, are helping systems benefit and you then you you get teams like the dodgers who are never picking near the top of the the draft but are consistently producing uh quality players both impact players and also plug and play guys uh, that'll help uh, on a depth level i mean they've been top 10 in our farm rankings for like the last seven years um yeah maybe you could say they spend the most but uh we have a system that the owners have created where you don't really get an advantage by being by spending more money in the draft and they are certainly disadvantaged by where they're picking. And yet consistently they are finding great players. So I think those two things would probably be uh, if I was running a team, if someone was stupid enough to put me in charge, those would be uh, the things that I would try and prioritize as much as possible. And it, it seems like a lot of teams are trying to kind of follow suit and
0: replicate that i love that answer. That answer like almost excites me because I just think it's so fascinating to look at it because that takes almost the sport of it out of it and looks at it in, in, as an organizational, like any other company, right? Like any other successful company, and like that's something that everyone can understand. And it's it's amazing to me because you you cite the Dodgers, and it's like for years there, you know, you watch some of these teams who struggle to to have. Homegrown players, and the Dodgers are out here taking D two shortstops from a school in New York and turning them into one of the, to a really good pitching prospect in Josiah Gray. And it's like, how how are they running? Like, what are, what could they possibly be doing? But communication. I mean, um, you know, like the Phillies just the, Kevin Long now, from my understanding, is their hitting coordinator, and their hitting coordinator is just basically the person that is the communication piece between their farm system and what Kevin Long wants wants guys to be. And to me, it's like, well, duh, right? Like that's like of course oh you want the guys that are you want to end up on your big league team to do what your big league hitting coach wants that makes sense mm-hmm. so I guess my question is if a lot of it is communication and that's what you've been told do you find it then interesting that some teams like the Brewers have struggled so much to develop a hitter but Corbin mm-hmm. Burns comes up to their system Brandon Woodruff Peralta like here we can roll arms up there but we can't yep. figure out hit like is that does that kind of fascinate you because to me that's what I think of it's like well if that's the big piece and you're really good at this side of the ball. What's mm-hmm. missing on this side of the ball? Is it a, a valuation thing or is it just a, a we're missing something? Yeah.
2: I, I don't know specifically what the reason would be for the Brewers, maybe not having as much success on the hitting side as the pitching side. It's definitely interesting that it, it feels like you can name more teams uh, that are pitching factories than you can name teams that are hitting factories. And maybe that's just kind of going back to the point that, that it all starts on the mound and, and pitching development has been ahead of hitting development. Um, it could be as simple as just missing on a few um, cycles of the draft or, or players not panning out. I mean, there's so much noise that probably gets in this as well, but clearly there's something that the team's uh, at the top and are doing well that that is sustainable and consistent for them. Um, I think there's also the, the point, too, that the Dodgers are a team that has continued investing in scouts uh, on the ground at the amateur level. Uh, there are teams like the Brewers who who have not been as aggressive In that regard uh, Some teams who have been more reliant on Models uh, to do the drafting I think the Astros uh, Were negatively impacted by going too far In that direction as well And you're seeing them kind of circle back And and add staff this past year um, Because I think they realized They they didn't have enough scouts on the ground Um, I do think that while teams like Cleveland, they, they seem to do a pretty good job of, of continuing to plug away, even as people are taken out of their organization and, and moving on to different roles. They, they still have solid processes in place um, to kind of keep that moving. But I think that you still need quality people regardless. If, if you lose a lot of quality people in your organization, no matter how good your system is, I don't think you're going to end up with great results. And that's that would be from like a front office um, perspective from a coaching perspective, from an analyst perspective and from a player perspective, like all these parts, you, you need the quality human beings um, to implement these processes too. Um, so it's not just having a good system and then everything is just going to snap into place. Um, but no, the, the brewers will be fun to see because I do think they have got a lot of really exciting athletes uh, in the system. Now South Frelick uh, Jackson Chorio. Joy Weimer, They've got a lot of interesting hitters who I'm really excited to see this next year. So maybe, maybe they are about to develop some of those bats, but yeah, when in doubt, just emulate the Dodgers, I guess.
0: Right. That's the answer. I feel like that could be the, like Dodgers Astros Rays, right? Like, it's just like, just figure out what they're doing. I think
2: my, my top ones probably are Dodgers Astros. I I talked to the one scout this past year who said every other team in baseball is jealous of, of what the Astros do with pitchers. Um, (laughs) guardians i mean if you give the guardians and the rays mid-level payrolls what are they doing Mm -hmm. right like it's a a joke that ownership has held those teams back um the other team i would throw in just because of what they've done the past five years would be atlanta i think those would be all the, the top the top orgs in terms of doing pretty much everything consistently well and then you can take out tampa and cleveland if you want to include ownership which i think you do want to include ownership we get we get a lot of flack at at baseball america because our Orga of the year award we take into consideration like how much you're spending on teams and and some people don't like that but we also have an executive of the year award that goes to teams that that don't spend but we think have smart front offices so all of it all of it matters um yeah just just imagine again like what would cleveland or tampa bay have won a world series by now if they had a little bit more investment in retaining some stars or acquiring some stars in the free agent market. I think there's a chance they would have won.
0: Right? Could you imagine if the Rays had just been able to pay one of like a big hitter at some point to plug in the middle of their lineup and yeah. have him for an eight year deal? And like, yeah, right. At like, that I point, mean, they're the East Coast Dodgers, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Well, I never, I never understood. I, I believed. I actually wholeheartedly believed this too. Um, you could ask Dan that I thought the Guardians and the Rays were going to make a play for Juan Soto because I felt like a model was going to break every projection they thought. You know what I'm saying? Like I felt like having a guy that young on the open market for that many controllable years as the missing piece you need would almost break your model and be like, and I've never seen a model, but I'd be like, like, that's different. It's like the Lamar Jackson situation. Like, how often has a 26-year-old MVP quarterback been on the open? But they seem available? like
2: teams that would be hard against that because their whole key is we have to be good every year. Yeah. And you know mm-hmm. the ball falls your way. So if you trade your entire farm for a guy like Juan yeah. Soto, who you know you're not going to resign, you've just committed yourself to all-in window now, which you know you're not going to commit the resources to capitalize on. And so how do you look two years down the road when Soto signed with the Dodgers or with the Yankees or with whoever's going to sign him. It it feels like their, their MO is to put a competitive team on the field every year, Mm -hmm. get into the playoffs and hope you get hot, which honestly in the current system for baseball is a great strategy. I, I think people really don't. I think people underrate regular season success and overrate world series. We talked about it. I mean the Braves and the Phillies when they won, I guess the Phillies didn't win. Well when the Braves and the Phillies went to the World Series, they were the worst team in the playoff field. Right. Um, but once you get in, you're in and anything can happen from there is baseball. Yeah, it's a, it's a complete crapshoot. It really is a complete crapshoot. And you
1: know, it's like like Mets fans or I mean it's the Dan and I've had this conversation about Trey Turner I had a Philly fan friend of mine who were like well what if they win two World Series in the first five six years of the contract and then for the last five he's terrible it's like <laughs> yeah if you could guarantee me two World Series like sure yeah mm-hmm. of course like absolutely but that doesn't like there's teams that invest big contracts and never win one and and that's that's the most insane part about it. And, you know, one of the, you mentioned models and one of the things that I want and scouts, and I had this kind of cross my mind. I read a book recently by Malcolm Gladwell called Talking to Strangers. And basically part of his whole premise of the book was that, you know, visual, like visually interacting with people, making eye contact, people can deceive you. Right. You can believe things that aren't actually true that he did not talk about baseball at all, but he used evidence in, you know, court yeah. with, with uh, all different types of situations where they were like, Oh, the person was remorseful. And then they go out and commit another crime. Mm-hmm. And my thought that went to mind was like, how much does scouting lie to you because you look like I know we've. Dan and I have been recruiting and you've been out on the field too. Like how many times does an athletic, good looking kid walk up, good bat speed, physical, fills out a uniform, but never performs, but you continue to your scouts are banging on the table going like, Hey, he's got tools. He's got tools. And then he doesn't pan out. Like how much, yeah. what's the balance there If like a model would never see that kid and be like, yeah. Oh, it's, it's great.
2: I think that is exactly the balance. Like that is why the, the model has value. And that's why the scouts have value because ideally, the model is uh, doesn't deal with all of the the biases that we deal with as human beings. There are tons of biases um, that can impact and and prohibit you from making uh, the best evaluations at the time, um, whether it's anchoring biases or um, recency biases or I mean, so many different things can come into play that that really fools us. Like our brain is not good at compartmentalizing. A lot of this information that we're dealing with Um, at the same time, too, I I also think that there is some some truth to like a developed intuition um, for scouts who've been doing it for a long Mm -hmm. time. There are things that when you've been seeing when you've been seeing the game for 30 years and you've seen so many different cycles of players um, at the amateur level who then have success, whether or not it's, it's something that you can identify at the time or it's just that that little intuition that you're like, I, I've seen this before, it's panned out. I think there's value to that as well. So trying to find the correct value of like understanding that the human element matters, but also not um, going too far overboard. That's the perfect blend, right? You want to be able to use analytics and data and the models to kind of have that that hard science of the scouting. But I also think that it is very true to say that in a lot of ways, scouting and projecting baseball players, there's a lot of art to it as well that that we either can't quantify or we don't know how to quantify well. Um, and so I think again, we talked about the successful teams. I think the successful teams in baseball value both of those. Um, the Dodgers are not a team that that doesn't value scouts on the ground. They're also not a team that that hasn't invested in analytics and models. Um, And so finding that perfect balance is always going to be the most difficult question. Um, No one's ever going to be perfect, but finding a way to continue approaching perfection every single day is, is the goal. Um, So yeah, there's, there's no, there's no perfect answer. Um, We're always going to have biases and and just trying to be aware of them. I think is the best we can do while also using the, the tools we have at our disposal now.
1: Awesome. Awesome, I love that answer. So, Dan, you have any other questions for Carlos before we get into a couple just quick rapid fire, and then we'll let you go?
0: No, yeah, let's let the yeah we, we gotta get, we gotta let him go at some point. <laughs> no,
2: this has been fun.
0: All right, so
1: I got four questions that I came up with as I was as I was thinking. So, um, and trust me, I I have a lot of stuff written down on the twenty twenty three draft. So we'll. We'll get you on at a later date to go in on that, <laughs> I guess, before uh, so we don't keep you all night. So first one's going to be favorite prospect ever.
2: Uh, Bobby Wood Jr. for
1: me.
0: Okay. Can I answer what you mentioned?
2: My my first year was 2017. I started with BA full-time. And then 2014, um, I interned. So that's kind of the the scale we're dealing with here in terms of how far back I go. Okay. Bobby Wood Jr. for sure. Perfect. So
1: I'm all about letting our guests fluff themselves. I'm not about letting guys come on here and talk about when they got punched out by a good pitcher. So guy you were higher on than the industry who hit.
2: Um, again, it's very short turnaround for me. I would say Kevin Parada right now, just because I saw him when he was a junior in high school and I loved him since then. Mm -hmm. I was shocked that he didn't get signed out of high school. I think we had him like top 50. I would have taken him in the first round. He's probably been the guy that I've been consistently, highest on in the industry so far. I think in um, 2017 or 2018, I was still like not at that point where I was like going to go out on a limb. I was still trying to just figure out what I was doing. So Parada feels like the guy that I've like kind of been highest on who has panned out. But again, this is a guy who uh, doesn't have a full season of the minors so far. So we'll see. But in, in terms of like how early I was on him and, Draft capital and how he's looked so far, he would probably be the one. Perfect.
1: So guy you were lower on than the industry that busted.
2: Or guy I was higher on that busted?
1: No, guy that you were lower on, like you were not sold on at the top and he ended up you don't have to I mean you don't have to put them on blast. I guess that's kind of no, offensive no, 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 no. to the player. <laughs> the
2: organization. I mean that's okay. <laughs> Let me pull up our rankings. It'd probably be hmm, that's a good question. Guys Lorani busted. Um Oh man. I might have to ooh, yeah. Actually I don't want to say the name that I just came across. <laughs> Let me see if there's one that's like <laughs> I never understood why Ryan Weathers went where he did in the draft. Okay. Um, I just liked some pictures ahead of him. Yeah. It was not a knock on Weathers specifically. Um, but I think he went ahead of Matthew Libertor in mm-hmm. that draft. And I, I remain surprised how far Matthew Libertor fell. So just looking at that 2018 group, that's maybe one um, that I would have been lower on. And I, has he busted? I don't know. He, he could still turn it around, but so yeah.
1: far. Yeah. So far, not worth worthy of the draft pick, I guess is probably the best way to say it. And we'll get, we'll get the other name you saw off air here. Um, but it, guy who surprised you the most, just like genuinely, like, you know, whether it be guy who impressed you the first time you got eyes on him and you were surprised people weren't talking about him or guy who just genuinely blew up and was like a superstar.
2: Um, Recent years, Tamar Johnson's best amateur hitter I've seen. Um. I was just amazed. He just constantly performed uh, every single oh, event man. I was at. He's got bat speed, pitch recognition, can flick the ball the other way, can pull it, um, pull side for power, 95 miles per hour, didn't phase him, always hadn't count. So he's the most impressive amateur hitter that I've seen. Um, in terms of other um, – I was always really impressed with Corbin Carroll's approach, and I think he's been better than I expected him to be, just in terms of physical tools and speed. Um he was one that, uh, again, another guy who always impressed me with his approach at the plate. Perfect. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Dan, you have
1: any
0: closing thoughts for Carlos? Oh, thanks for coming on. This has been a blast. This has been awesome. Oh, thanks for going to I've us had a time. blast
2: as well. No, thank you guys for having me. This has been fun. I've, I've learned a lot. Of course. Well, I mean, from our perspective, you are literally always welcome. Like, if, <laughs> yeah. it does not matter.
1: Like, whenever, (laughs) Whenever, whatever you want to do, hopefully, you know, even next time we we can get Colin on here to kind of get some of just, I mean, a perspective from every angle,
0: player perspective, evaluating. Yeah, I'm perspective.
2: curious what Colin thinks about people like us who rank players. If he, uh, <laughs> if, if he hates that or not? For some yeah.
0: reason, he he likes uh, he likes me and Trevor. For some reason, I think he's known Trevor his whole life, so that's like yeah. a given. I don't know why me and Colin get along so well. good. Deal. <laughs> yeah. No. He
1: he's very. Uh, I don't think he has a mean bone in his body, mm. so I can't imagine that he would be offended by anybody ranking him anyway. So that's awesome. Um, he would he would definitely love to get on here. and and pick your brain about some stuff. But to our listeners, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed just sitting here having the conversation. Uh, We appreciate Carlos taking his time and and hopping on with us and and just talking ball and, you know – Hopefully you guys enjoy this episode. Making sure you're liking, sharing, and, and subscribing. Any share helps with the podcast. Sharing with five friends, um, it helps us grow. Every every episode we put out, we can try to grow a little bit. Just a reminder: I know the ad read is going to be at the beginning. Dan did an impressive ad read yesterday, so we got to we got to reload it again. But we are partnered with SeatGeek now. Promo code backside ground ball get twenty dollars off your first ticket purchase. So. Um, make sure you're getting out there for some live baseball this year. But other than that, we'll see you guys on the next episode.